guys can take a seat. Um, good morning again, and hi, everybody. Uh, we're going to go a little bit different this morning, which I am excited about. Um, from time to time, we will, uh, whether it be at the end of a sermon series or um, just even in actually a message, just open up a, some space for, for conversation, for, for question or response um, that we can just kind of tweak a, a different side of our brain and, and maybe hear from God in a, a, in a different way. Um, but one of the ways we want to do that is to actually have other people join us from time to time. Um, whether it be, I mean, they could be vastly different from who they, who they are or who we are. They could be somewhat similar. I mean, it, it's a broad spectrum um, that we actually get to, to hear from and experience just more of God from other people. Uh, I think the worst thing for all of us would be just my voice, um, Sunday in and Sunday out, and, and I think that's never the case. We just have such a, um, just a beautiful mix of people um, and just leadership and the things that God has done in so many of our lives that we always want to create space for others. Uh, but a part of that is people even outside of our church. So um, what we're going to do here in a minute is welcome Tim Getterd up. Uh, Tim Getter is a, a New Testament scholar. Uh, so for those of you who might be new to church, new to the Bible, that would be the second half of our Bible, essentially. Uh, and that would be, call it taking Jesus and going post-Jesus, last couple thousand years. Uh, and he spends his life studying that. Um, and, uh, you know, maybe even some specific chunks of that. Uh, but I've gotten to know him through seminary. Uh, he teaches a number of classes at Fresno Pacific um, and he has changed my life in a lot of ways and opened me up in a lot of ways and challenged me in a lot of ways. And so I just felt like he would be such a blessing to all of us. Um, and so I'm going to invite Tim up. So go ahead and come on up. We can welcome uh, Professor Tim Getter this morning. There's a chair for you. And then all I'm going to do, I'm just going to ask him questions. And he doesn't know my questions. He has no idea what I'm going to ask him. Um, but the better I can ask questions, maybe. I, you could probably save my bad questions, actually. So it's all in your hands, actually. Now we know that. Um, but, yeah, again, I, I just think this comes out of a space of uh, wanting to do things different, experience new people, but just the impact that you've had on my life um, Thank you. in a short period of time. Uh, it's not like we have every class together, right. uh, but at least once or twice a year for a six- to eight-week chunk, uh, I get to spend time with Tim and so many of us. So um, can you just, just very briefly, if someone said, who's Tim, what would you sure. say? Well, first of all, it's, it's a real joy to be here. I've known about this church from a variety of sources, from Ryan, from one of my fellow uh, professors. Uh, I bless you. I'm so grateful that you exist and that you're gathering for worship and that I can be with you this morning. Uh, I've lived in Fresno about half my life. The rest of my life, I, live, I grew up in Canada. I've lived in Scotland where I did some more studies, and I lived in Germany. My wife is German, and so we lived there for a number of years. So I've been around a little bit. I've been in different kinds of churches. Uh, I've been blessed by the Vineyard Movement in a bunch of different ways. Uh, I don't know what to, how to answer who is Tim. I, I'll say a little more in, probably in response to some of my questions, but uh, I grew up in a very conservative immigrant uh, community in Canada. My parents immigrated out of or emigrated out of uh, uh, former Soviet Union into Canada as German Mennonites. And, uh, so I'm an immigrant to the United States, but before that, my parents were immigrants to Canada. And so I kind of, I, I think my life has been shaped by a, 
a very narrow community that believed there was one right answer to every question, and that's the one we needed to know. And, uh, and half my life was becoming that, and the other half has been broadening from that. Uh, so that's a little bit about me. I have a, a wonderful, blended family, large family. I told a few people before that I lost my first wife to a brain tumor uh, when I was studying in Scotland. I had two young sons. So I came to Fresno as a professor, uh, as, a, as a single parent. Uh, I met a German student. We married. We had four more kids. They all grew up, and then we decided six wasn't enough, and so we became foster parents, and then we adopted our little girls. So I have, uh, I have a daughter the same age as my grandchildren. Uh, my kids have lived all over the world and speak lots of different languages. So it's my little narrow immigrant upbringing has become a world that's just very different. But then also shapes and is shaped by my understanding of Jesus and the New Testament and theology. And so maybe that's enough to get started. Those of you who are going to be with me, uh, with each other in a couple of weeks, uh, we'll have a lot more opportunity to talk then about some things. Yeah. Now, I hope more comes up. I mean, you can see Tim could just, he could just talk for about a half hour and it's, it's, you know, he could take the full time without my questions. Um, but I'm curious. So yeah, with that story and I have, yeah, a couple questions from that specifically, but I would love to know, um, how all of that led to you being in a place where you said, I want to study these texts from 2,000 years ago and really give my whole life to it in, in so many ways. Uh, so I grew up in the church. My dad was a Bible teacher in a Bible college, and uh, I wanted to be a math teacher. Math was my love. I, in high school, I was sure that was my calling, uh, although I was more sure that that's what I wanted than I was that that's what the Lord wanted. Uh, I attended the school where my dad taught, Maybe I took one course from him, but lots of other courses from other professors. And uh, I, I could say I fell in love with the Bible. I'm not sure that's the right word, though. Maybe I, I became convinced of its absolute importance and thought of it as a puzzle to be solved. Actually, like puzzles, too, jigsaw puzzles. And so putting all these little pieces together was, was this fascinating project that I believed I was pretty good at and it was important to do but you see at the time I believed that there's one right answer to every question and all the pieces have to fit and if they don't then the whole thing falls apart and so I was desperately convinced that I have to figure this out exactly right or everything doesn't matter anymore and so I spent three years in Bible college trying to get all the pieces together and then I went to seminary and I'll tell that story another time because that blew the whole that whole worldview apart because I suddenly discovered there isn't just one right answer to every single question, and I'm the one who's going to find it. Uh, so so I, I became convinced that the New Testament is absolutely crucially important. And at the same time, had some opportunities for ministry, for preaching and teaching, even as a very young college student. And, uh, and one night, God surprised me by doing for me what I don't think God needs to do in order to call people into ministry, and that's to meet me head on and say you're going in that direction but I'm calling you to go in that direction and you're not going to be a math teacher you're going to be a bible teacher and uh, and and I don't believe to this day that that's an experience that people have to have this sort of clear explicit call because I think God calls through the community and God calls through experience and God calls through opportunity and lots of other ways but for me God decided to just turn it in a new direction and at that point I knew that that's what I was called to do so I did other things as well. I planted a church, 
But that was also preparation for what I ended up doing, teaching the Bible. So do I end up becoming a New Testament scholar at some point? Is you that might. This is just a step towards that? Not only you, but oh. half the people here might. There you go. That's a scary thought for me. <laughs> uh, so I'm curious. You mentioned something there. Um, I, can, I mean, I know uh, a number of people. I have close friends that there's that idea. You're talking about that right answer or yeah. you know, the jigsaw, and if this doesn't happen, this all falls apart. But I, you know, the, the statement of there's contradictions in the Bible, so therefore it does not hold together. Therefore, it does not make sense. Um, can you speak to that, those who would say, well, I can't believe any of it because it contradicts itself? Sure. I, I knew that these tough questions were going to come, and I knew that they were going to be not only tough but important, and somebody's faith might depend on what I say. I mean, not completely, but a, a little bit. And so let me, before I even say anything to response, say that I'd love to spend half an hour, but I shouldn't. I should spend two minutes because there's the next question, right? Perfect. Two minutes is not enough to deal with any of the really important tough questions. So I'm going to make a couple of comments and say there's way more. Plus, Tim Getter doesn't have enough wisdom to answer all the tough questions either. So even before I say anything, please, if my answer is not satisfying, please don't say, oh, I guess then I don't have an answer for my question. There's good answers that need a lot more exploration and conversation and more people's wisdom than mine. But a very brief answer to that question is, if the Bible were a jigsaw puzzle box with thousands and thousands or hundreds of pieces that you have to put together exactly right, if that's what it was, if that's the kind of book the Bible would be, then if the pieces don't fit, then it's wrong. It's just wrong. It's, it's a bad puzzle. You ever put a puzzle together and there's five pieces that are from a different box or they're missing or they don't fit? Like, if the Bible were a puzzle, it has to fit. But if the Bible is a story, then we should treat it like a story. And a story has characters and it's a plot and it has development and you don't expect from a story what you expect from a puzzle box. Yeah. And you don't expect from a story what you expect from an ethics book. You don't expect from a story what you expect from a theology book. The Bible has lots of ethics, has lots of theology, it has lots of puzzles. Uh, but it's a story more than anything else. It's the story of God's plan for the universe, for the restoration of creation after the fall, and helping us discover our place in it and our role and and learning to play that role in community. Like, it's, it's, that's what it is, and so we should treat it as something different. Plus, it wasn't written first and foremost for 21st century United States. It. it was written for the whole world, in many cultures, in many places, in many languages, and if we're going to judge the book by whatever standards we think a contemporary North American book ought to meet, we've put ourselves in the center of something that doesn't, where we're not the center. Mm -hmm. We will discover who we really are if we put ourselves into that story rather than take that story and make it our story. So that, that's a short answer. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, didn't, I don't know how, yeah, anyways. Sure, yeah. Literally, like this is not a joke response. Like, I, yeah, good, thank you. Um, there's so much there. And it, so one, one thing that I have so appreciated about Tim, and I, I don't know how many people tell this to your face, Tim, but um, 
you're you're brilliant. Uh, you're, you're very intelligent. You're the 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 amount of work you've given to this. Um, there's just two sides you can go. Oftentimes, it's the side that you do have all the answers and you have figured everything out. And, and I know that can be a common Western American way of things, just in general. Um, but Tim's humility in, in all of this, and, and it makes sense that you pastored at points and planted in those kinds. Of, you were very pastoral in your way of going about um, scholarship, and so just thank I learned you for it from that. students like this. <laughs> Man, that's so good. I, I mean, you might as well just take half hour and keep going there. But that does, one of my favorite questions, actually, a few people had sent in questions, whether through email or through text messages. One of the questions that came up that I loved, and I think this goes off of this, um, is that 2,000 years ago, Jesus came to say, uh, I bring good news. And for us, 2,000 years ago is a very long time ago, and we, we, it's hard to understand. And I have some other historical context questions. Um, but the good news to them, maybe elaborate a tiny bit on that, and then how is that still good news for us today with things so different? So the word good news in the Bible is very, actually very closely related to another important Bible word, the kingdom, kingdom of God. Uh, and to understand what Jesus meant in his world, it helps to know what people expected God to do when God would finally show up and send his Messiah and fix everything. They did not expect what Jesus, in fact, offered. They expected something else. Uh, they were an oppressed people. They were under the thumb of the po most powerful empire the world had ever known, the Roman Empire. They were sure when God finally intervenes, the main thing God is going to do is get rid of these Romans, uh, push them into the Mediterranean Sea, and make Israel the powerful nation that it was supposed to be. And uh, that's what they expected to happen. They had all sorts of different ideas as to what would make it happen, whether it would be a war, whether it would be a revival, whether it would be whatever. There are lots of ideas, but that's what's supposed to happen. We're going to be a big, powerful, central power in the world again, and we're going to be free, and people are going to pay tribute to us instead of us paying tribute to Rome. And Jesus came along and says, I have good news. God is going to build, or is in the process of building the kingdom even while the Romans run the show from an earthly perspective. Even in an unjust world, even when we're still oppressed, God is at work, God's going to do amazing things, God is going to transform you and your community and use you to transform the world, even though the Romans are still in power. And nobody expected that. And until they came to recognize that that's in fact what Jesus came to do, they didn't want anything to do with him. Most of the people who rejected Jesus did not do it because they misunderstood him. They rejected him because they understood exactly what he was saying and didn't like it one bit. Because he didn't bring the things they wanted him to bring. They wanted wealth and, and power and, and uh, a comfortable life and revenge against their enemies. And Jesus says, we're going to learn to love our enemies. And he had dinner with tax collectors who worked for the enemy. And he didn't even tell them to quit being tax collectors. So the good news wasn't very good news if you're waiting for all the wrong things. But those who accepted his message that God is at work even in the middle of an unjust world and God is building a new kind of kingdom and a new kind of community and a new way of relating to each other and a new attitude to enemies, they experienced the community of Jesus as incredibly good news 
Because the, the only better news than God present among us, transforming us in the middle of a badly bruised world, the only better news is that the kingdom comes in its fullness and there is no more injustice. And so they believed that this was the evidence that one day that was going to happen yet too. And so for the last 2,000 years, people who have truly believed Jesus have also been convinced that we've, we're already experiencing the foretastes among us as a community in our very small circles of influence with our neighbors and friends. We're experiencing the foretaste of what's one day going to be true for the whole of God's creation where it's renewed and restored. Some people still don't think that's very good news. The one big argument against the Christian faith is if there's a loving, powerful God, then the world shouldn't be the way it is. And that's a powerful argument. It's led a lot of people away from faith. But those who can experience true, authentic Christian community that accepts the message of Jesus, that God is already doing among us what he'll one day do for the whole world, and using us to do in our small circles of influence, we can recognize that the good news is enough to offset this powerful message that you keep hearing from, from the enemy, that you know, it can't be true because look at the world. And we say it can be true because look at the Christian community. So that, that's a part of it. Uh, the different world, different expectations. In some ways, not so different. <laughs> Sometimes our world expects all the same things that they expected. We're going to be great and powerful and, and live a life of luxury and This might be more of a pastoral question, um, but I'm curious, and, and what would you have to say to those who would look around at the world right now and say that there is no God? Yeah. There is no way that all this could be happening if this so-called loving God is real. What do you say to that? First of all, I wouldn't say what I would have said uh, when I was a university student. Uh, at the time, I believed the only way to convince the unbeliever is to be smarter, to have better arguments, to show that their arguments ultimately aren't good enough. And so I was trying to be the smartest Christian apologist that ever went through University of Saskatchewan and studied philosophy so I could convince all my philosophy profs that they were very smart but not quite smart enough because that's why they're not believers yet. And it's taken me a very long time to realize the implications of the fact that you don't become a believer by being smarter than everybody else. In fact, you become a legalist and you become a know-it-all and you become less persuasive because you're putting down other people who don't reach the same conclusions you do. So I would take very seriously the argument that that there can't be a God because look at the world and look at all the injustice that's going on. I would take that totally seriously and say, nevertheless, I've experienced that God is present with me in my hard times. I, I could have lost my faith when I lost my wife to a brain tumor. I was surrounded by a community of people who helped me see that God is present even in the terrible times. Terrible times in my life, terrible times in the community that I lived in, terrible times in the world. But, but there are people like, I don't know if you've ever heard the name Bart Ehrman. Bart Ehrman was, was a true Christian Baptist pastor who lost his faith and now writes books trying to prove that Christianity is a big, great big hoax. 
and every book he writes is more explicitly his attempt to tear down the Christian faith. He's a very loving man. He spoke at, not very far from here, at, at the Fresno City College a couple of years ago. I went to his lecture, and he told his conversion story, how he became a Christian, and then he told his anti-conversion story, how he lost his faith. And he explained it's because the world is so terrible and it's so unjust that I just cannot believe that there's a God who loves us. But that doesn't mean I can't try to do something about the world. And then he told us what he does. And he, he's a very hardworking, generous man who cares about the world deeply and helps people with food. And, and I have great admiration for him and I hope that one day he discovers a Christian community in which he experiences enough foretastes of the coming kingdom in which all this injustice will be dealt with once and for all by the return of Jesus, that he comes back to faith. But in the meantime, I'm not going to say you're not smart enough. I'm not going to say you're not sincere enough. I'm just going to try to learn from his generosity and be a faithful Christian with an alternative set of conclusions. And I, and I think that the best we can offer each other is to share our brokenness and our questions and also our love and our care so that people can experience among us what they don't experience in the big, bad, unjust world. At the same time, let's have our eyes open to see that there's good things happening in the world too, perpetrated by people who aren't Christians. And, and in the end, we, we believe because God has helped us become part of a community that helps us to believe and, and not because we're smarter than everybody else um, a couple things from that so uh, maybe just one here um, and I'll use this one as a state but I, there's a piece here and I want to elaborate on something else but just the fact that you're showing up to a lecture by someone else who you would disagree with um, and just in our times together. Um, actually, you know what? Elaborate on this. How has reading or studying other people in your, in your work of scholarship and New Testament specifically, how has that played into where you've arrived today? I think that the more we're immersed in the Christian faith, the Christian community, and the scriptures, the less risky it is to encounter and to read people whose views are totally different and to sometimes totally non-Christian. Uh, I, I don't find my faith shattered by Bart Ehrman's arguments uh, because I understand where he's coming from and I understand where I'm coming from. Uh, so I wouldn't necessarily recommend books by doubters to new Christians. Uh, we first need a grounding in the Christian community and the Christian faith. But once, once that's getting in place, we can learn so much from people who are coming from all over the place. In fact, some of the most important developments in my understanding of the New Testament came through people, for example, John Wimber, some of you have heard of him probably, uh, who emphasized the kingdom of God, which almost wasn't being emphasized by any Christians. In his, in, in his heyday. Uh, and he got it from fellow professors at Fuller Theological Seminary. But guess where they got it from? From all the liberal theologians who thought Jesus was 
something totally different than he was and who didn't believe that the Bible was trustworthy. And they started taking the Bible and tearing it apart and saying, you know, I think that we've missed something here. There's a whole lot of stuff about the kingdom of God in here that nobody's talking about. So let's try and figure out what that is. And they had all sorts of crazy ideas. And some people said, kingdom of God is present because Jesus is here. And other people said, no, no, the kingdom of God is going to come one day when the, when, when the Messiah shows up. And they argued and fought. And they, this, this group of people tore out half the verses this direction, the others tore out half the verses the other direction, because Jesus seemed, seemed to say the kingdom is both present and not yet. Of course, nobody can possibly believe that the kingdom is present and not yet, so Jesus must have been completely confused, and the New Testament must be completely confused, but we're smart German theologians, and so we know which half to tear out, so we can figure out whether he actually believed that it was present, or whether he actually believed that it was not yet. See, these are all what the liberal theologians do. They like to tear apart the Bible and, and figure it out better than Jesus and better than Matthew and Mark. Except, guess what? Jesus really did teach that it was both already and not yet in a wonderfully profound way, which if you could figure out what in the world you mean by that, opens up the whole New Testament in a brand new way. But nobody in the conservative Christian church was paying any attention to these guys because they're all a bunch of liberals until one of their fellow liberals came along and said, maybe it's both. And we still weren't listening to them because they're liberals and we don't want to listen to liberals. And then somebody at Fuller said, yeah, actually it is both, isn't it? And, and a whole new world opened up. And if you've spent any time in the Christian faith, you've heard this idea that the kingdom is both already and not yet. Who's, who's ever heard something that sounds a little bit like that before? If, I had, if my dad had asked that question in Bible college in 1968, when I was a Bible student, said, how many of you have heard this idea that the kingdom is both already and not yet? We would have all looked at it and said, duh, what? Never heard of it. In fact, most of them would say, I didn't even know there was a kingdom, except maybe heaven. So where, why not? Why read these people? Because they have insights. Maybe I shouldn't confess this in church, but I used Bart Ehrman as a textbook in one of my courses because he's a world-class text critic. That's, that's what he is. Uh, so we learn from wherever, but we need to be grounded in, in the Christian faith and in the Christian community and evaluate together what it is we're reading. And in the end, all the smart ideas aren't going to come because we're conservatives. They're going to come because we ask good questions and look for answers. And sometimes those of us in the more conservative side of the Christian faith are the least ready to ask good questions and look for answers because we're sure we already have all the right answers. Thank you. Um, yeah. It's not going to be enough time, by the way. You're all going to be like, wait, that was it? This is, that's what's going to happen at the end of this. Like, there's just not enough time for all of this. We could spend hours here. Um, with, yeah, I'm just keeping an eye on the clock. Um, I'd be curious. So even in that, uh, just this, because uh, there was a piece there even that I love that like we could actually still learn from other people though we may not agree with them or they, they might not agree with us. I, I hear that and I think it's applicable to just everything in our life. Um, for anyone here, whether they've picked up a Bible or not, whether they pick up a Bible very little or not, um, or even a lot, because I, I think as you're saying, there still could be, we can still get to this place where we have all the answers. Um, and sometimes it can come from a lot of reading. How could, what would you tell to anybody across the board to better understand 
the Bible because we are reading a text from 2,000 years ago? How do we fully understand what the heck is going on? As, as a beginner, I would say read, read a lot. Like, if you want to read Mark, just, just read it through. It only takes an hour. Like, don't read four verses and see if you can figure them out. That's what we, we do. We, we read four verses to try and figure them out. Well, Mark is also a story. You don't do that to a story. You read a story as a story. And so I read to my daughter every night, and sometimes you, you don't want to quit at the end of a chapter because it's in the middle of the plot. And so you, but a story is a story. We never read the first sentence of a paragraph and then analyze it. So read it as a story. So read Mark as a story. Read Matthew as a story. So that's the starting point. Uh, the story will develop themes and characters and, and a plot and, and have an important message. Uh, the puzzling things inside the story have been partly, what's the word, unpuzzled, have been partly uh, explained to us by the translators. Every time we read an English Bible, we're reading a translation of what was originally written in Greek. And if it was just super literally translated, it would be even more confusing. And so English translators sort of smooth it out and, 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 and add explanatory comments just a little bit to make sure that the English reader gets the clarity that the first Greek readers would have gotten in their world. But you can't explain everything in a translation. That's not a translation anymore. And so a good Bible will have footnotes. Pay attention to those footnotes. They're, they're pretty important. When we meet in two weeks, I'm going to have a, a little block of time saying, why do our translations differ from each other and explain sort of the three reasons. There's three reasons why they differ, and the footnotes help us figure that out. So if, if you're puzzled, look at the footnote. There might not be anything in the footnote because the translators might not have known which thing you're going to be puzzled about. And so the next step is get a good study Bible. A study Bible has about two-thirds of the page is text, and about one-third of it is lots of comments. And, and that's, that's super handy. I mean, most of you might be reading it online or on your phone or something like that. You can usually find a one where you, where you can just do a right-click and get some comments on it as well. Uh, so that, that would be starting. Uh, recognize what kind of literature you're reading. If it's Matthew, it's a story. It's, it's a biography. It's a narrative. You call it anything you want, but it's still telling a story from the birth of Jesus till his death and resurrection. If it's Acts, it's a story of the church. If it's Romans, it's not a story, it's a letter. Okay. So if we, if we sort of pay attention to what we're reading, we'll benefit more than if we just read it as if it's four verses that need to be decoded or something. And then, Hannah, if you can pull that slide up, actually, um, as you just you bring that up and everyone will feel like there wasn't enough time today. Uh, August 6th and 7th, so it's a Friday night and a Saturday. Um, Tim has offered to be with us uh, at the back room, just a couple blocks over, and it's specific to these things. It's how do we better understand the Bible? How do we better understand Jesus? Um, how do we step into this text that was written 2,000 years ago and actually find what it means for us today to participate in this story of what God is doing? Um, you can go on the Church Center app and, and sign up for that. It's free. Um, there's no cost there. Uh, and then I think we may have baited Tim into like, 12 to 1 is bring your own lunch and you can just hang out with them and, you know, that kind of thing. Um, so I just want to make sure everyone is aware of that and I would love to see a good amount of, I think it will be transformational. And so, I mean, it really, it's a seminary level, you're learning from a seminary pro professor. Um, so you're getting seminary level training that you're not paying seminary level prices for. So there you go. He knows. Uh, yeah, exactly. So take, take advantage of those when you can. Um,
Yeah, I, I, and I want to say, Tim's actually going to close us out here in a minute, and then we'll move into ministry time. Um, I think, is there just one more question that I want to ask? Um, so maybe in the beginning, it was a bit of how you arrived to giving your, your life to this text, essentially. Um, and maybe it's one and the same in some ways, but Why? I think usually God's call ends up being where, where your passion and your some opportunities and skills that you recognize or that others recognize in you, where they sort of come together. And even though my calling was kind of dramatic, I was looking at the night sky and I saw a falling star and it was accompanied by a voice, uh, inner voice, like it was kind of crazy not the kind of thing I'd expect or expect for others. I think even without that, at some point along the way, God would have just drawn my heart away from math to New Testament if that's what God wanted to have happen. And maybe the Lord would have let me be a math teacher for 10 years and then become a Bible teacher or, or maybe just math teacher all my life and teach Sunday school and church. Like, I think God gives us a lot of free choices and when God's will is more specific, then he helps us make smaller choices that lead to bigger choices that eventually get us in the right direction. So why am I doing what I'm doing? Because that's where God led me, step by step, in odd ways and normal ways, and, uh, and has preserved and guarded and guided me along the way so that I never gave up and never blew it up somehow. Uh, I don't know how to answer that other other than I'm doing what I love doing and uh, getting pretty close to retirement. I don't know. I'll, I think I'll be grieving when I, when I quit, but it'll be time to pass it on to someone else. And, yeah. you know. That's good. Thank you. Um, now, there's a number of themes uh, that I, I'm sure you've pulled from either the book of Mark or just the New Testament as a whole. Uh, one thing I, I asked him to kind of to attempt to end us with um, is just a short bit of a teaching, uh, maybe we could call it, um, just what you have for us this morning. And then as, as he shares that, then we'll move into that ministry time, um, pray, sing a song together, and, and then we'll, we'll uh, move on. So um, can you do that for us? Yeah. So as you know, Jesus told a lot of parables. And when I grew up, I thought parables were super simple. Like he would say, complex things, but then people didn't get it, so he'd say, well, let me give you an illustration, then he'd give a parable, oh, yeah, well, that's obvious. Like, parables make obvious what otherwise might be unclear. It's actually the other way around. Jesus said lots of really obvious, clear things, but he also used parables because they are provocative and open-ended and transform our worldview, and if we just sort of hear a parable once and then think we've got it, we, we missed, that we missed the whole point. Parables aren't supposed to be something you just get. They're supposed to be things that stay with you and provoke you and challenge you and make you wonder whether there's more. So anyway, Jesus told lots of parables. Maybe some of them were just to make it simple as well, but lots of them weren't. So one day Jesus was telling all these parables. Matthew records that for us in chapter 13. And when you get to verse 51 of, Mark, of Matthew chapter 13, you get a really strange conversation. And I, I don't think I ever really paid attention to it until one day I realized what was going on here. 
Jesus finishes his parable teaching, gets in, goes into a house with his disciples, and asks them a question. Have you understood all these things? So the disciples have a ready answer for Jesus, and it's one word. Now, they have a few options, right? They could say yes, or they could say no, or they could say partly, or they could say what? Help, uh, or maybe, or, or if they wanted to use more than one word, they could, might have said it's not going to be on the test, is it? Uh, so what, do, what, do you, what answer do you think they gave? Anyone remember? Have you understood all these things? Yes. So what do you think Jesus is going to say now? Here's what Jesus says. Therefore, every scribe who has become a disciple of the kingdom of God is like the owner of a house who takes out of his treasure, out of his storeroom, new treasures as well as old. I told you this is a strange conversation. So what do you think the disciples are going to say now? They should say, huh? Like, so listen to it once more. Have you understood all these things? Yes. Therefore, every scribe who has become a disciple of the kingdom of God is like the owner of a house who takes out of his storeroom new treasures as well as old. What in the world does that mean? Like, I have a, I have a nine-year-old daughter. She's a little bit too old for this now, but when she was in kindergarten, she would have thought it meant... Oh, good, there's a treasure box here. Let's go get one, like, when you go to the dentist or something. Is that what Jesus means? Go get a treasure, you got it all. Or does he mean, well, if all the other parables were so simple, try this one. <laughs> so here's what I think he meant. Do you know what a scribe is? A scribe is a know-it-all. A scribe is the kind of person I spent the first 25 years of my life trying to become. You get all the pieces figured out right. You build this logical house of cards that comes falling down if anyone moves a piece. Like you, you, a scribe has it all figured out. There's always one right answer. I got it. What's a disciple? It's a learner. That's what the word means. A scribe is grammatus. Learners, mathetius. You either are a know-it-all or you're a learner. What does Jesus want? Know-it-alls or learners? Jesus wants to transform know-it-alls into learners. The goal is not to know-it-all, or at least never to think you do. It's to keep learning. So here, now listen to the conversation again. Have you understood all these things? Oh, yes. Oh, no. You've become know-it-alls. I don't want you to be know-it-alls. I want you to be learners. So if you've turned into scribes, I'm going to try to turn you back into disciples because it's only disciples who are going to discover the new and the old treasures that are waiting for you to discover. I spent half my life becoming a scribe, and I've been trying to spend the next half of my life becoming a disciple. And I want to assure you that if you're on a quest to make sure you have everything completely figured out, 
it's okay if you never reach the goal. It's better if you never reach the goal. Because Jesus wants you to be a learner all your life and not someone who ever has it all figured out. Because once we think we've got it all figured out, there's nothing left to learn. One of my best delights as a teacher is when my students say, I think I have just as many questions now as I did when the course started. Because if I think that they've adopted every answer that I've proposed all the way through the semester and now they can spout my answers to anyone who asks, they missed the point and I did too. So I want to encourage you to always remember that disciples are learners and learners. It's okay to change your mind. It's okay if you discover something that the person beside you hasn't discovered yet. It's okay if you're part of the same Christian community and you don't reach all the same conclusions because we're all on a journey of learning and we don't want to ever reach the goal of thinking we got it all figured out because that's not a goal worth pursuing. So in two weeks, we can spend some more time not having all the answers. <laughs> there we go. Can we thank Tim for being with us this morning?